0: Hello, and welcome to another week of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, what's up?
1: Hey, Sean, how are you doing? I am now fully vaccinated, and I celebrated by staying at home and doing garden work.
0: Yep. I am two days away from being fully vaccinated uh, or you know, fully protected. So by the time the show drops, I will be running naked through the wilds of <laughs> western New York, <laughs> screaming... Give me your COVID, I can take it. Or I mean, something.
1: I don't think that's how it works. Is that okay? Well, I mean, you might want to read a CDC guidance. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, I the think the nudity, that... I think, is great. That, that I think they right. encourage. Okay, that's good. I,
0: but that was the, you know, my, my brochure that I got might have been <laughs> the wrong one. Uh, but anyway, and and yeah, I have to good. ask, uh, are you a uh, New York Times best-selling author?
1: No. Are,
0: are Are you a columnist for the Financial Times? No. No. Are, are are you a, a knight? Have you been awarded the OBE? No. Oh well, this is sort of a letdown from last week. Then. I know this is uh, we've really when, come when down we, hard. when we had Tim Harford on. So, if you did not hear last week's episode, go check that out. Uh, Tim Harford was on talking about his podcast uh, specifically, which an episode covered the Satanic Panic and had some great stories about uh, that, as well as talking economics and and. Dungeons and Dragons, and all sorts of amazing topics uh, from a very talented intellect and, yeah. and a great writer. So, so uh, go check that out. This week, you're stuck with just Taos and I.
1: and Really, his whole podcast is fantastic. I was listening with my kids as I drove them to and from uh, track classes, track practice, uh, to his episode that he does with Martin Luther King and improvisation. Mm -hmm. Man, that it's it's really cool. So that whole it's it's good. It's like my new Radio Lab. It's just something I love to to listen to these and and hear him. And he's got such a great voice for it. And yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, I was listening to the episode on Pepsi and the contests, uh, and and how
1: yeah how Pepsi
0: almost went bankrupt because of the contests they were running. (laughs) Uh, Just um, you know, amazing, fun, well told stories uh, that you know have this sort of economic behavioral science background. Uh, that that's amazing but like i, I said it. this week you're stuck with Teos and i just you know talking about D. but i hope we can keep you entertained as we cover first the news and then we get to the final part of tasha's cauldron of everything on the dm side where we're going to where we're going to discuss
1: puzzles and we'll do it in a british accent in honor of tim in honor of tim exactly
0: <laughs> so first up th- that this is my british accent by the way uh, so first up <laughs> There was an amazingly interesting article on the Wizards of the Coast website where they talked about uh, or it's a blog series. And the first in the series is talking about the new studio that they opened up. Uh, So it's obvious they went through sort of a restructuring uh, at some point they did. And so they describe what that restructuring is and sort of frequently asked questions about how things are made in the D&D side, the game side of things. Uh, uh, Fascinating. And it
1: sounds like this is the beginning of a series they'll do. They kind of said frequently, but we're not gonna tell you how often. right? And they're gonna have different people from the studio speaking about sort of how they do their business, which is awesome.
0: Yeah, so the information in it is is interesting, which we're going to tell you all about in a second. But it's also interesting because you don't do these things without a reason, generally. You don't say, Hey, look, we're, here's our new company, or here's our new setup. And, and sometimes it's just, you know, to gain goodwill with your consumers or your fans, you know, sometimes you're trying to get people thinking in a certain direction. And so thinking about why they did this now is interesting for me as well. So uh, Brandy Camel, the community lead introduces the series and, and the, what they hope to achieve with the entire blog series. And then uh, executive producer Ray Wininger takes over and writes the blog post or the blog article, who we are and what we do. Uh, Ray has been a long suffering uh, designer in the industry uh, in the sense that he's done some really amazing work and he's been around quite a while. Yeah. He sort of got out of the game industry itself for a bit and did more things in terms of, like, digital design and and uh, things of that nature before coming back to Wizards of the Coast to take over the D&D team.
1: And, and as we can see, <laughs> the years away from the industry really hurt his career. Yes. So never <laughs> leave the industry. Keep writing for two cents a word. That's the secret to success. Uh, yeah. That's I'm the way it seems. sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I apologize to everybody. Yeah, <laughs> Teos is in full sarcasm mode. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's unfortunate that in almost every industry, the secret to advancement is leave for a bit. But
0: but well, I I have friends who are not anti D and D, but they're like you know D and D is just one of an amazing array of role playing games that you should be playing, and several of them have played non D and D games that Ray wrote you know, back in the day, like back in the nineties and two thousands and just absolutely love it. So when I told them that he had taken over as the lead for basically the D and D team, they were like, wow. Oh, wow. You know, maybe we'll have to check D and D out again.
1: Uh, So he has, he has
0: cred in the sort of indie RPG world as well.
1: I I have recently reread his old, uh, dungeon craft articles and I have to say, man, that is a series that stands the test of time. You could almost write it word for word today, and it wouldn't feel dated. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really surprisingly good, and, and which is to say it was ahead of its time, the type of thinking he was applying back then. So, right. yeah, I, yeah, I can see that.
0: So he, he is a great game design mind, and he is now leading the D&D team. And so even though he's already been here been at Wizards as the head of D&D for two years. He is now introducing himself again to, <laughs> to everyone. And so then he goes into what the studio does. So what what his his game design, D&D game design studio does. And as the name pretty much describes it, it handles the actual role-playing game products.
1: Yeah, can I just back up one second to say that what sure. is a studio... Because a studio is a sort of type of business approach and it comes from the idea of being sort of like a, almost like a tech incubator. Mm -hmm. And and in big companies, it's the concept that instead of having like a a small department that works with all the rest of the departments in the building or buildings, it's the idea that you try to act as if you were a little mini thing all by yourself Mm -hmm. and you have all the things that you need to work on. So you're very insular as if you were like a tech startup kind of incubator approach rather than being sort of spider, spider web out into all the rest of the company.
0: Right. So the, the four departments that are in the studio sort of exemplify that, which is game design, which is responsible for developing the game mechanics and the stories. Then there's the art uh, department within the the studio, which does the look and feel, right? It does the visual concepts, mm-hmm. directs freelancers, uh, comes up with graphic design, innovations, and so on. Uh, then there's the production department, they manage the schedules, interface with the manufacturing folks, uh, and then handle like administrative matters. And then the product management team interfaces with sales, with marketing, with research. So rather than having a separate production team outside of DD, they have brought people into D to act as production. So they still interface with others, but the members themselves are within the studio.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. And then they also delineate what isn't inside the studio, which which is equally interesting because I think sometimes we hear things like this video game or the T-shirts and the hats and mugs and, um, and the upcoming TV show, movies, all that. And they said, that's not our group, right? Other teams handle that. There are teams for the D&D video games, the merchandise, the entertainment offerings. And so while Perkins or Crawford might be brought in to assist the teams that are doing that they don't actually know all of it they might not be up on the latest copy of the script of the movie or the upcoming tv show or whatever or even what's on the twitch schedule um and so he specifically says like they can't answer questions on those things right yeah or or won't because it's not their area
0: exactly and also they the studio will collaborate with sales with marketing pr community management and so on those are separate areas where the studio will interface with them to answer questions, but not take on those roles. Yeah, and so one of the bi- major things that the studio will have to do is decide what to produce, <laughs> uh, which is interesting because in most businesses I've been involved in, whether it's academics or you know, um, sort of the nonprofit side of things, public sector, private sector, there's sales and marketing and, and PR generally have a large say. In what you yeah. do uh so I, i'm wondering if this how long this lasts uh because yeah just just as a as a business uh someone who is interested in how businesses run seeing right. that uh a red flag went up for me like oh we'll see how long that you're deciding what to produce before sales and marketing uh, are telling you what well, to
1: produce and also there's a difference between a tent and what you're actually doing. And so mm-hmm. sometimes there are these rules that are on paper that say, hey, you know, our studio does this and then we collaborate with you. Mm-hmm. And, and in theory, because you're supposed to do that, you, you wouldn't have like, say, last minute changes to a product based on some red flag that comes up in some other team. Right. Uh, Unless it really, really merited, but it wouldn't be a whim. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and, and therefore you're allowed to focus and get your job done. But what often happens at companies, and I visit a lot of really big companies, Mm -hmm. uh, is that while that's, what's on paper still somehow, you know, Sam at marketing can throw project sideways Mm -hmm. and everybody just has to deal because that's the way it happens there. And I think we see enough from wizards to suspect that, there's a little more on paper than there is in practice right and and so maybe it won't change drastically because there's still that engine of under you know under, yeah. underplaying the ru- the written rules right. which there shouldn't be right uh yeah. if if the studio model is to shine so we'll so, see yeah. how that shapes up too
0: yeah so good luck with that we hope it works out for you <laughs> we do uh, so but when they do decide what to produce uh ray set out a sort of a guide for how it works once per quarter. The studio leadership will review pitches by the employees. And then those with merit are assigned to be developed further. And then there's an approval process that will get it onto the schedule with a product lead who will own the vision and own the schedule, uh, designing some of it themselves, and then deciding who else gets to design on it. And he also noted that they develop almost twice as many products as they end up publishing, which will allow the best to go to market. Now, this is this is interesting for me because I, I, I totally get the concept of getting something to a certain point And then it's almost like a, a launch, right? A rocket launch. Yeah. Do, we, do we have thumbs up or thumbs down? Right? right. Go or no go. And it's it's interesting to see that maybe Wizards is large enough now where they can afford to do that where they can afford to get products far enough along to figure out, okay, this is what we're going to publish. This is what we're not going to publish because unless you have a a lot of overhead uh, to not waste money, but to spend the money to get those prototypes and to get that far enough along to, to make that decision is a luxury. And if they had that luxury now, then I'm, I'm happy for them.
1: And and the key, again, is doing it well, right? Because there are stories from the TSR days of product lines that would get pretty far along and then would be killed. And often the designers would feel, and they, they'll say this on you know message boards and things like that, how they wish that product had happened and they wanted it badly. And they don't agree with why it, it didn't go through or why it went as far as it did before it was axed, right? Mm-hmm. And so th- that's the key to being a good uh, company is to know how to put in those checks early enough mm-hmm. that you can find out whether the product should be created or not and stop or shelve it and go great we're going to focus instead in this direction and, and that's something they don't address here and, and, and it's hard to do this perfectly right but oh, yeah. to it's fine to come up with lots of ideas but you don't want to waste your talent and focus on it or burn out creators because mm-hmm. like you know if yeah. you write something and you hand it in and someone says great but could you redo this that's a really painful thing right and you know, what's and even burns more you out if it happens yeah and what's
0: also <laughs> painful is you know great can you redo this okay great can you redo this one more time oh by the way it's not going in the book or oh by the way we're not doing that book that is yeah. serious burnout uh yeah so yeah your but, entire
1: piece was yeah. cut and, and and if you're communicating that to freelancers right we couldn't use your idea even though it was great mm-hmm. that's yeah. that's rough yeah it is um but yeah, interesting. Almost twice as many products as they publish is a fascinating thing, and you know, small companies can't handle that, right? You cannot right. spend that time doing that.
0: Yeah. So he goes through the 2001 schedule and he you know tells who was involved in what product. 2021. That are, 2021. Thank you. Uh You know who was the lead on certain products that are coming out and who is working on what now they don't give specific projects but the you know they say well james wyatt is taking on this project that ray initiated and perkins will be returning to make the big summer slash fall adventure and so on so you know it's got that sort of that inside baseball without giving away too many details a really cool question oh go
1: ahead i was gonna say we there's a total of five new unannounced products, one of which would be your expected Meg adventure that Perkins is working on, Mm -hmm. but another extra four, that's a, that's a lot.
0: That, that is a lot. It is a lot, which again means that they now have the staff to do it and hopefully the budget to reach out to freelancers to, Mm -hmm. to work on the things where they don't have the in-house staff to do it. Uh, An interesting question that comes up all the time, I'm sure. And so they put it in this uh, document is how much influence does Hasbro have? And the answer is <laughs> twelve to fourteen months.
1: No, 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 no. How much
0: does Hasbro have? How much? Uh... Oh, oh, how much? Oh, you
1: want? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yes. So the answer is none. Yeah. Right. The answer is, and this is something we've talked about on the show, that Wizards and Hasbro are pretty much separate and autonomous, um, and that is clearly shows some of the the hand of, of why this blog is being written to answer questions like this that may be misinformation or misunderstanding of the customer base as to how wizards operates and something you see in all kinds of formats twitch twitter blogs forums is someone saying well because of hasbro mm-hmm. and right. those of us who work with D closely enough know hasbro barely ever does anything around the decision-making. And mm-hmm. so they talk about this, right? Hasbro greenlights the major investments. Like if they're going to do something like make a D&D video game, then that huge outlay does require some oversight. But And they might choose to collaborate on something like they did on one of the beginner board games. But otherwise, it's really Wizards making the decision, not Hasbro.
0: Yeah. And he also, to go back to what Teos uh, said earlier, the 12 <laughs> to 14 months is the minimum that it takes to create and publish a product. Yeah. And if you think about that, you know, that's at least a year from initial conception of a a product or a project to its completion. And in our day and age, how much can change in a year is huge. You know, an idea that sounded good 12 months ago may sound terrible now. Yeah. Uh, So it, it's always that, uh, It's always that balance you have to to make. And that's why you want to have various products being developed at the same time. Even if you're going to say no to one, it's good to have a backup ready to go uh, in in case of some sort of large-scale catastrophe that (laughs) means this product that you are very, very close to publishing can't be published.
1: Right. Or if another one you find that idea that's put on the back burner would actually be perfect right now, then you can accelerate that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I also want to note that a lot of this was people-focused, uh, which is always going to happen, but he talks about the studio leadership being currently Crawford Perkins, Amanda Hammond, Wes Schneider, James Wyatt, and more are being trained. And these various projects that they talk about, the different five projects coming up, they, they kind of talk about who's leading them. And it was interesting to me that, you know, James Wyatt used to be in a different department, and has come back over recently, or at least it, has, it was announced recently. It's hard to always know how long someone's been doing what, because um, Wizards tends to not communicate this kind of things. Right. Uh, but then Amanda Hammond and Wes Schneider are all relatively recent hires coming over from Paizo, where they had tons of responsibility. So it's not at all bizarre that they're doing these these activities. It's all very fitting. But it is interesting that they're relatively new in terms of being back at Wizards or at Wizards. Um and that it isn't other folks who, say, have been longer at Wizards, right? That's mm-hmm. always a hard thing to balance with your staff.
0: So. Yeah. And the last big question they answer, which is one of the most interesting ones for me, is how can I become a freelancer? And they, they say use the DMs Guild, uh, <laughs> which we're going to talk about in a second. And then they linked to two uh, other pieces of media. And it's interesting. They, they linked to an old uh, interview. It's four years old now. Yeah. With James Hake talking about, you know, how he became a designer, uh freelance designer on some wizards books. And then they put up a YouTube video that had uh Lisa Penrose and Celeste Conowich. and I think Armand Justice. Justice Arman. Yeah, Justice Armand mm-hmm. and uh uh Lisa one Penrose. One it, it was uh,
1: oh Celeste and
0: uh hang on it 'll come to me it 's uh she she runs the the writing d and d design workshop uh, oh uh,
1: ashley ashley
0: thank you uh so none of the people who they linked the advice to are actually wizards of the coast
1: employees which i found interesting and and they 're not constant d and d freelancers right they don 't right. like they they all have a product right but they don 't necessarily have Five products or reliable work with them or
0: yeah so they're all amazing people they're all amazing creators they all have really good points to make it's just odd for me that no one from wizards of the coast actually said hey you know this would be or they didn't link to any panels that had wizards of the coast employees at the moment uh which which i thought was I don't know what it, what that says. I don't know if it's telling uh, that, that that's the case, but it was of note, let's put it Well, that way. it
1: is telling to me because they they have been saying for a long time that the key to working with Wizards is the D- DMs Guild, and it doesn't hold up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not to say it doesn't happen, but, I mean, M.T. Black had been this prolific DMs Guild creator dominating the DMs Guild, unbelievably so, and then finally got a writing assignment. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it took a long time for that to happen. And it couldn't have been a more obvious name. And how do you I mean, I wouldn't say on anybody try to be empty black. And even then you had to do some serious waiting and other people were getting in first. So it's clearly not the biggest way in. But they always act as if it is and candle keep mysteries. I mean, you know Perkins revealed pretty clearly he did it through Twitter and word of mouth, right, yeah, whichever names were mentioned the most, and I think the reality is that is how you get in is if it's not be it part of Hollywood scenes, it's word of mouth that's gonna slowly build up over time, right. and the d m s Guild is more about sharpening your skills and and yeah. And you know, you self learning and and interacting with an you know customer base so that you know how to make good products. But it's I don't believe that there really is someone at Wizards sifting through the DMs Guild to find great talent. Yeah, yeah, and wrong. Yeah, maybe the audience.
0: Yeah, uh, maybe the audience is more of the the tool that that you can use. And how do you get an audience of game fans of, of players now? Is it DMs Guild or is it? put up a stream right is it right is it you know becoming a voice actor and then find find right. your audience there it's well, it's an interesting and, and question
1: and it's a hard thing to balance if you are someone th- there are a lot of people that are sort of in between right you have some people who are just really well-known writers with established careers that have worked for other companies or for D or whatever that are obvious, like, you know, they can do the work. And then there are people who are very new, but maybe have something like a stream or something that gets attention. And those kinds of folks came into Candlekeep, which is awesome, right? Because you're getting this sort of new, broad, diverse talent trained up. But the people in the middle, I don't know how they get noticed. And 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 someone in the middle, I think, it's it's a, you can look at this section on this blog and go, you haven't told me how I can get in. Right.
0: Yeah and yeah you know, it's a long shot anyway so yeah, it's true.
1: so so that's uh,
0: <laughs> something that they obviously don't say but if we're going to live live in reality that's yeah
1: that's there it's fascinating but anyway but but uh, then i wonder why why spend this space on this if it's yeah. not really a thing why why, why say it why it's yeah, yeah it's really interesting yeah
0: so you can go to uh the dndwizards.com uh website and it's one of the first things you see is the dnd studio blog Whew, so yeah. that was that was a lot of news right there, and we, we're just getting started.
1: Whew. Yeah, but it's great. Uh, I'm I'm really glad that exists. Like that's a neat yeah. move by Wizards, and I'm I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, and it'll be of- interesting what future blogs have to say. Uh, speaking of the D and D studio, Adam Lee is leaving the D and D team. Uh, Adam has been highly involved in all of the recent publications, and now he is leaving the D and D team to join the Wizards franchise team. Where he will be developing D and D and magic content for movies, media, and more. Uh, we learned that from a Twitter post from uh, Adam.
1: Yeah, super interesting. Uh, I really like Adam's design. The parts of adventures that I know that he has worked on, I have been some of my favorites. Um, so I'm I'm in some ways sad to see him move over, but uh, but this could also be a really neat place and these kinds of positions really need people that understand how D&D works. So seeing somebody that has the knowledge that Adam Lee has be there is a real win for Wizards and hopefully then for us.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know as more of the movies, TV shows and other media come out, it'll be interesting to see uh, his fingerprints on on those yeah. project projects. Uh wow. I mean, moving down to the third news item, which is huge. <laughs> when this came out, I was like, oh, I can't wait to talk about this. Yeah. So the new organized play storyline campaign is going to be Ravenloft Mist Hunters. Uh, so this will be like uh, Oracle of War, sort of a, an offshoot of the campaign. So it's a separate from the Forgotten Realms campaign. And it will be releasing July 9th during the virtual play weekend for July. Uh, It will take place in the domains of dread where you'll traverse eerie lands as you unravel a mystery that has far-reaching consequences culminating in an epic confrontation with an implacable foe. And uh, one thing, just to go back, in none of the talk of the D&D studio did they mention organized play. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So,
0: so this, uh, this for those of us who are, you know, have spent spent twenty years plus in organized play, are not surprised by that. Uh, but <laughs> I'm excited for this. So we have a new, uh, a new campaign coming, and you want to yeah. carry us through this.
1: Well, what's fascinating is, uh, you know, you and I, as students of organized play, we love to see how someone decided to design this, and this is a very different approach. Which is awesome. I always love experimentation. So Mist Hunters is going to focus on story, atmosphere, and immersive interaction. And less on combat. So that's kind of cool. yeah. Uh, And very fitting of Ravenloft. It's going to feature 1st through 8th level play. And here's the really interesting one. No rules documents to read. It's going to use a story-driven guided character creation experience what do you think of that sean yeah
0: well i hope this is more than just hype right i hope this no rules documents to read is something uh that that they can carry through on and it's hard to do
1: yeah especially
0: funny. with D players especially with organized play D uh players who are used to the organized play experience which obviously requires some extra rules
1: yeah, and we've seen some efforts like this, right? The original yeah. Red Box was like this. The fourth yeah. edition Red Box mm-hmm. uh, sort of had this approach where you were, you know, seeing go- kobolds or goblins attack a caravan, and you get to decide: do you want to hide and move around? Oh, well, now you're a rogue. Do you want to, you know, mm-hmm. what is your approach? Oh, Well, look, you have a spell, and then you give people their their character bits, and that's what they are. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what yeah. what they do.
0: But if um, if they can pull this off, it's brilliant. Because what what is the hardest thing with d d is teaching new players. Mm-hmm. The, the hardest thing with organized play is getting new players in with these extra rules on top of everything else. Yeah. What can you play? What can't you play? What do you have access to? What don't you have access to? If you can do, do that during a play experience, mm-hmm. rather than, hey, new person, read all the D&D rules, and then also read this 30-page document, (laughs) Yeah, right there is a barrier to entry. So if you can say, during your first adventure, even if you know nothing about D&D and know nothing about organized play, by the end of this two, four, whatever hour experience, you will not only have a character ready to play, you will understand the rules of the campaign without any need for extra documentation. And I'm, I've got my hands together in prayer, hoping that this is something that they're able to do because I would have loved to have tried this with Oracle of war, yeah, but it would have been just too much too quickly. uh. So, so maybe, maybe this is the time.
1: Maybe. I mean, I also, this is to me the kind of thing that would have been amazing to do across summer conventions in person, right? Where you know, you have the thousands of people coming to say, "How can I play?" Mm-hmm. And you could run them through this experience, and the buy-in you would achieve by have all these hundreds of people that would have character sheets that they made right mm-hmm. during play. Right. That would really set them on the now. I want to play the next piece, which you could do from wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, the virtual play weekends have been doing well in terms of numbers, but I don't know. You know, I don't know. It, will it have the sticking power of if yeah. you had been at Origins Gen Con packs, yeah. right? Uh, so Because that's an important part because what's going to happen is you're then going to move on to Adventure 2. Mm-hmm. And Adventure 2 is probably going to assume that you're just bringing that character. So you're either a pregen or this character that you already made. Yeah. So now you're, again, in start that assumption of you know what this campaign's all about. Mm-hmm. But new people might come in at Adventure 2. So that's immediately... Yeah. Ah, oh, it's going to be fascinating to see how this works.
0: Yep, and like Oracle of War, it's a sequential series of adventures with each building up on the last, um, and then the choices that you make will affect the future, uh, mm-hmm. play a future adventure. So you can side with side A or side B. If you go with side B, it's going to affect how the adventure runs next time or yeah. somewhere down the down the road. Uh, and you get to go through several of the Domains of Dread, Ah, uh, each adventure will focus on one subgenre of horror as a thematic anchor, and there was, there's been articles up on uh, different types of horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so that's an interesting look at at things as well.
1: Yeah, and in case anybody doesn't know, Van Richten's Guide is being written such that each domain of dread touches on a different horror subgenre. So then, by exploring these different domains in this campaign, you'll get to sort of walk through them. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And that's just uh, as a complete offshoot, that's something that we've been doing in Grim Hollow being a dark fantasy campaign. We've been sort of looking at different aspects of horror and and sort of highlighting undead versus body horror versus you know yeah. all, all of these different cosmic horror so it's it's fun to see wizards doing that now uh, and not, not that great they idea. still took it from us because they you know don't even know who we are, but uh you know it's it's great to uh to have. To have, see that, to touch on as many different fandoms as possible.
1: Yeah, and they're going to start and end the series with a bang. The, there are 14 adventures, and the first and last are both epics with multi-group play interaction. So this is where I suddenly go, wait, we're right. making our characters during an epic?
0: Right. That, that, that confused me as well. Uh, so... I I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it goes, but each adventure is premiering at one of the virtual play weekends rather than at an in-person convention, which is unusual uh, or different, but I understand why they're doing it since there aren't any (laughs) in-person conventions going on at the moment, although hopefully soon. So, uh, so, so there we go Uh, there. You won't have to track experience points or milestones or use other sorts of leveling systems, uh, when you play an adventure, you simply simply ensure that your character is the level required for play mm-hmm. uh and they will have content warnings to help you understand uh what's going to be in it and to help the your dungeon master uh describe what's in it if you're dealing with horror, you're possibly dealing with some some graphic uh or troubling aspects mm-hmm. of of life, so you uh sort of need those yeah
1: yeah, and then dragon plus adds a potential tie-in to this they say in the magazine that may's virtual weekend which is coming up will offer a preview of the house of lament adventure which is found in van richten's guide to ravenloft and that that might be tied into the start of mist hunters in some way mm-hmm. so it may be that if you play a house of lament in may then when it goes to the next uh so it was this july so the, yeah. the virtual play weekend after skip one and then you'll be doing the uh mist hunters campaign and there may be some tie in there yeah. so just fascinating right
0: yeah I, I don't have a lot of time like i can't really sit down for 4 hours to play too much anymore but i'm tempted to f- for yeah. may and definitely going into uh into this new campaign i want to see what yeah, it's all about yeah i want to try that too and and you know chris Tulak came back to yeah. the D&D side of things and is taking over organized play as well as these sort of convention experiences. He is the genius behind the Expeditions program and the D&D Encounters program from 4th Edition, yeah. which was such a huge success. So I'm, I'm, yeah, so I'm really excited to see what Chris is going uh, yeah. to bring to all of this new content.
1: And he has a fantastic way of creating excitement with the teams that he works with. Mm-hmm. So it'll yeah. be neat. And yeah. I can't imagine, I mean, you know, you and I have had uh, our fair share of doing first experiences where there's sort of a tall order that's being asked of you, you more than probably any other designer. And I, I can only help but think, and I'm sure you did this too, what would it be like if I had to create this, right? Like yeah. create this, uh, design your own character under this situation. Oh, it would be yeah. fascinating. What yeah. a task.
0: It's th- 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 this is the reason Sean doesn't sleep at night, right? <laughs> it's like I'm laying there in bed going, okay, brain, stop. And I'm like, oh, but wouldn't it be cool if I'm like, okay, brain, uh, yeah. stop. And so, yeah. But I mean, getting an email from Chris when you know, when he was before and recently, you know, it's like, hey, I've got this project. I'm like, oh, just a big smile on my face because yeah, I know yeah. it's always going to be exciting and something fun. So oh, yeah. looking forward to that. And I hope all our listeners are as well. Uh, A new Unearthed Arcana article came out with Draconic options. Uh, It touches on three new Draconic race options presented as an alternative to the Dragonborn, as well as a new take on the Cobalt race, sort of tying it in more closely with that Draconic heritage. There are feat options based on getting Draconic powers, and then more spells based on infamous or famous dragons from D&D lore. Did you want to comment on any of the content specifically?
1: No, I, 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 it's, it's, it's all fine. Like, I don't, I don't see any, anything broken. Mm -hmm. I don't see anything, you know, that's tremendously problematic. I just don't know that it's the kind of thing that excites me. Mm -hmm. Maybe because I don't have its context. Like, yeah, I'm fine with Dragonborn. I don't know why I need three types, right?
0: Three types that are almost the same as the original. Right. Or very close, right? It's the old dragonborn. You had a breath weapon, you used it as a bonus action, and then it recovered on a on a short rest. So yeah. it's basically a quote unquote encounter power. Uh,
1: and I can already and, play a kobold, right? Uh, so you've changed it a bit. You've given it a different power.
0: Yeah, uh, you
1: yeah. know, I don't know. Like,
0: yeah, what, what? What? I was excited when I read it when I started to read it, and then I read it and I was like, it's great, it's fine, but. I, like somebody on the DMS guild could have done this Mm -hmm. and, and I would have said, yeah, this is a sound person's, you know, a sound designers look at a different way to do dragonborn, but it's not innovative in in the way that I want new content from wizards to be innovative.
1: Uh, so I'm, I'm, we'll touch on that in a bit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A few, a few news items later. Right. I don't
0: hate it, but I don't, uh, not looking uh-huh. forward to it. Uh, new casting for the D&D movie.
1: Yeah. Chloe Coleman, who is a 12-year-old actress uh, from My Spy and Avatar 2 and several other upcoming films. One is a sci-fi and so uh, beyond Avatar 2. Um, so interesting addition. We have a young member that will be doing some role. There's no, no info on what they are doing, but it uh, be cool to see her.
0: Okay. The uh, the cast, it's just good news as more and more people are cast because it's more and more likely that the film gets made.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and she's in a number of films. So, for being a young actress, uh, you know, clearly someone who's commanding. I mean, you're an avatar too, right? So, yeah. like, this is not, <laughs> you're yeah. not inconsequential to to grab a talented child actress. Right, right. So. Yeah,
0: it's not a B movie uh, at this point, right, for sure. So I didn't read Dragon Plus issue number 37, except to look at the cover, which was yes. absolutely amazing. Uh, so Ralph Horsley, who uh, is an artist that has worked for Wizards, obviously, before, and, and is supremely talented, made a reenvisioning of the old red box cover with the fighter st- facing off against the dragon, only it's kobolds who are kind of posing, so there's yeah. two kobolds uh on each other's shoulder with a sword and then the dragon is this uh model of a dragon that is being worked by kobolds and then there's an artist on a kobold artist with an easel drawing it as the big fighter against the real dragon so and, it's so almost witty deli so
1: like or or any of those other classics the 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 painting kobold is is painting the painting is the actual red box cover right and the painter is turned looking at us, yeah. right? To sort of acknowledge all the walls being broken. It's yeah. one of the best pieces of D&D art that I have seen. I mean, it's unbelievable. I can't yeah. believe that this... Anybody came up with this idea, yeah. and that then Ralph Horsley pulls it off like this is... Yeah. Un- just go look at the cover if you do nothing at else. I mean, wow. Yeah. A classic, a truly a classic Dragon Magazine-type cover yeah, Unbelievable. Yeah. great stuff so so what else is in in this issue i'll give you a super quick rundown we're in no right. depth all all just you know reasons to check it out uh we introduced the new senior art director kara kenna we cover jasper's game day the organization raising money for suicide prevention and awareness and later on we're told that there will be a link in the may jasper's game day which is may 7th to 9th or the may virtual play weekend will mm-hmm. also coincide with jasper's game day so you can Play virtual play weekends and automatically if you play like a ravenloft game you'll be giving money to suicide prevention it comes right out of your tickets so it's perfect there um there will also be panel discussions and virtual play weekends the first one is focusing on advice for dungeon masters so that's new uh the uk scouts have added a D scouting badge which is always really cool sweet uh, There are reader-submitted strange tomes that you could find in Keep, Candlekeep. One is Leoman's Guide to Tiny Hut Holidays. <laughs> I like that. Awesome. There are a number yeah. of really fun ones like that. So if you're looking for just books to chuck into Candlekeep, this is a great way to do it. Uh, in fact, we kept, we kept a list like this. When you and I wrote the Candlekeep uh, adventure that was during D&D Next, yeah. uh, one of the DMs started writing down name, names of all the books because everybody coming in had to give a unique book. Right. And they gave me that list and then I added to it. And so I have a huge list of very funny names yeah. from players too, which That's is great. great. Um, they looked, in D&D classics, they always look at old articles. And this time, because it's sort of April-ish, they look at uh, funny articles from D&D's past and funny covers, including one with the ecology of the flump, which is Your- a great read. Your favorite. Uh, it's pretty good. Uh, maps of the Month. You can download maps and art for Candlekeep Mysteries. That's new that they have art that you can download too, but that's a cool way to... Now you've got a prop you can use when you're running virtual tabletop, things like that. Character Spotlights continues to involve. Last month, we got the first one of these, or last issue. Max Dunbar and Adam Lee pair up to draw and design cool NPCs. And this time we get more of like scenarios, like actual encounter, a skeleton of encounter with actual monster stats and, um, and suggested Monster Manual monsters that we can use in the scenarios. Really well done. Plus, you get Max Dunbar's awesome art of it, so that's really cool. Best of the DMs Guild focuses on two things, horror and Candlekeep. You get a free copy of Murder in Moss Bank, a Q&A with Ashley Warren's The Storytelling Collective, which she says has almost run 10,000 people through this program yeah. on how to write adventures in three years what yeah that's
0: uh that's that's busy that's man i mean
1: i knew ashley warren was cool but this is yeah that's how can i grow up to be her (laughs) pause and reflect all right Right. uh moving on article on yeah virtual play weekends talked about that and the last is an interview with brian perry who is a director of franchise marketing and gives uh sort of his angle and how he got there and what to do
0: Well, thank you for that. Uh, Wizards of the Coast is now directing some of the D&D translations. Uh, for 5e, uh, Wizards had contracted Gale Force 9 to do the translations. Uh, in turn, Gale Force 9 had contracted country-specific translators, and then there were some issues of localization uh, based on that. There was even a lawsuit at one point uh, when Wizards tried to end that contract with Gale Force 9. So it is obviously something that Wizards is thinking of, right? Growing yeah. the brand, growing the game outside of English speaking uh, countries and areas. And yeah. the
1: big change now looks to be that. So, so Wizards sort of tried to pull back from some areas, and Gail Flores and I actually sued Wizards, and then they came to some agreement. And mm-hmm. we're all still moving on as we were before, except. Right. Areas where Gale Gale Force 9 is not doing the translation, such as Italy, where Asmodee does them, Wizards is now handling those directly. And Asmodee wrote that they are no longer doing the translation for this, and apparently there's some other countries where that will be the case as well. Mm -hmm. So it looks like this is a push, that Wizards will try to directly control this, which I think is probably good for the game. Yep, I would say so. Uh,
0: There is news of another hiring by ghostfire gaming. Uh, I started working there in January and now we have acquired the talents of one Mr. James Hake. He is a senior game designer and head of fables. And I wish I could tell you what that means, but I can't yet. Um, Mm. But we are, we at ghostfire are very, very excited to have James on board and cannot wait to turn him loose on a number of amazing
1: products and offerings. Sean Merwin and James Hake together, it's kind of like Shrek and Donkey. I mean, what can't you do together?
0: Well, I am definitely Donkey in that uh, <laughs> in,
1: in, in that duo. James Hake has layers. Confirmed. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, this is, I mean, what a great hire. Like if you're looking at being an organization that wants to bring in somebody awesome, I mean, phew, yep. wow. Uh, so this means that a few issues ago where I said that he was... Uh, going to be, I think, planting turnips. I forget what exactly I came up with, but that yeah. was apparently misinformation, and I want to apologize for that now. <laughs> we we need to um, uh,
0: offer a retraction. The first, uh, the first yeah. Mastering Dungeons retraction goes to Teos. Uh, <laughs> James not with, uh,
1: actually becoming a farmer.
0: Not a turnip farmer. He is right. the now... Uh, he is the fable. Head of fables. That Head of sounds fables, cool. yeah. Mm. And... More James news, but this is James Intracasso. Uh, MCDM has released the Illrigger class, a completely new class empowered by a major pact with a devil. Mm. So you took a look at this uh, yeah, in depth.
1: I sure did. And and this is going to tie into a little bit, you know, that draconic ancestry type approach of wizards sort of not doing anything surprising because this is the opposite. This is really quite innovative uh, it's not to say that it isn't without any prince uh, any um, what's the word I'm trying to get uh, without any basis and past design but right. it's it's how they combine it is very refreshing. So the idea is devils came together to create an unusual organization of elite shock troops and gave them the independence to go out and handle issues and resolve threats as they see fit and you are one of these ill riggers. The core class is around this concept of the pact with a major devil, but and and you get some features around that manipulating an audience, manipulating life force between beings, conjuring a mystic seal you place on creatures for an effect. Uh, you also have this thing called invoke authority, which lets you invoke the powers of hell once per day, and the extra effect is then determined by your subclass. And the subclass now colors what kind of Illrigger you are. Are you more paladinish? Uh, are you more roguish? Are you more wizardish? It's really cool, and it doesn't do any of what we see in Tasha's—that's sort of full of like, let's give you lots of reactions and bonus actions and temporary hit points and all these things that you're just kind of like, woof, that's a lot of baggage. Mm-hmm. Um, here. It it there's sort of different styles of effects, and, and my understanding is it, it's Matt Colville that did the design of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you know, most of this is really him, mm-hmm. and it has I would say a pretty refreshing take on how to create these various subclasses. It does not feel like it's another Tasha's or mm-hmm. uh, Xanathars or anything like that. This this feels fairly fresh again, not without precedent, but but it's right. it's a different way of putting things together. So we have these three types. The painkillers follow Dispetter and are lead from the front warriors. Shadowmasters follow Moloch and use stealth and assassination. And the Architects of Ruin, great name, follow Asmodius and use secret lore and spells, particularly illusions. So as an example, you know, you have this core invoke authority power. And if you're an Architect of Ruin, your version is spellbreaker. You call on Asmodius. Uh, on his authority to protect you from enemy magic, anytime you're targeted by a magic missile spell, a line spell, or a spell that requires a range attack roll, you roll a d6. On a one to five, you're unaffected. On a six, not only are you unaffected, but it is reflected back at the caster as though it originated from you. Super cool, neat, different. Yep. Um, you get some spells and NPCs, and one of the interesting things is you get an opening piece of fiction. Very Matt Koval style approach right. uh, all full of these total tough team of groups that are taking on a big threat and it leaves you with the feeling it's based on uh, the chain uh, uh, live stream that he runs mm-hmm. but it gives you each of those characters in the fiction are clearly a new class mm-hmm. So right. it's sort of like, oh, are we going to see all of these? <laughs> yeah. Probably. Yeah. Uh, but also, the threat involves time travel and planes and stuff, and and you're also like, I kind of want to know more about that as well. So it's a big tease to all of what MCDM might be offering down the road. Yeah. So it's it's interesting
0: to to look at, especially in in that uh, through that lens of, well, this obviously is there's more coming, uh, and yeah. what could that be, and how do you yeah, you know, if we look at new design through fun, flavorful and balanced, right? The fun and yeah. the flavor are ju- are just dripping off of of this yeah. based on that Super. uh historical yeah I, mean,
1: yeah. I want to play this next. Like it, I read this and I was like great and now I want to make an illrager. Like yep. you know, what's my next class if the DM allows it, it'll be an rigor. Like uh, just yep. And I'm not sure which one, but <laughs> they're all really cool.
0: Play one of each. All right. And last but not least for our news, there is a new D&D Adventures League release uh, from the Plague of Ancients campaign. This is DDAL 10-07 Into Darkness by Oliver Darkshire. Times have been especially hard on the Goliaths of Worm Doom Crag, and losing the few hunters they have left to Neogi slavers will certainly spell their doom. You must delve into the ruins of an ancient city buried beneath the spine of the world. What secrets lay in the Deep dark, do they promise salvation or doom? Part seven of the Plague of Ancients series of adventures. For our adventure for APL eight, cool. so you can pick that up on the DM's Guild.
1: And, and the Naogi get... are from Spelljammer, so therefore Spelljammer. Spelljammer confirmed, confirmed. absolutely.
0: whoo, So that was a lot of news to cover. Uh, so because of that, as we said, we are going to only focus on the DM, the Dungeon Master Tools uh, part. Of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything this week, where we will finish up talking about puzzles. So, what this section does is it begins by, you know, giving you the the soft sell on puzzles. Uh, talks about devious traps and multifaceted mysteries being a staple of fantasy adventures, which is true, uh, but they're not the easiest challenge for a DM to present <laughs> on the fly. Also very true. So what they want to do is give you a lot of information on puzzles and then give you some sample puzzles. Uh, So they go through. The one thing that they failed to mention, we are going to do this service by mentioning it for you now, (laughs) DMs or game designers, is that some people love puzzles. Some people hate puzzles <laughs> with an irrational disgust. I have been at more than one table where the adventure had a puzzle. And when I presented the puzzle, one or more players got up and left and did not come yeah. back. That's the reaction that some people will have. So, so I'm talking about people that have paid like $15 for a four-hour game and would have rather left and forfeited that money than, than yeah. do a puzzle. And not not even a big puzzle, right? A a regular old puzzle. So you need to be aware of that before you engage in any be puzzlement in your adventures. Uh, There are ways, as we will discuss, to grease the wheels, as it were, to to give the spoonful of sugar to help the puzzle uh, be delivered and. And So always keep that in mind. If you have a Venn diagram of people who love D&D and people who love puzzles, I think when the game first came out, it was probably very similar. They were very close. I think Mm -hmm. as time has passed, that circle of Venn diagram has gotten a little further and further away. Uh, So always be aware of that. Even if you love puzzles, uh, you may not be in the overwhelming majority of D&D players.
1: Yeah, and I, th- and I think that because they don't address this, they also don't address what to do to mm-hmm. make them work for more players and how to handle those situations, or even, you know, because they talk about how they want the whole group to be involved, they don't really tell you then how to enable that, and mm-hmm. this is just a quick thing that when I, I recall a puzzle in an adventure once where there was this handout, and the handout hits the table, and my friend Ralph says the answer. hmm and I, I'm, we're all, we all look at him like, wait, what that you solved it. Yep. And what it was, it was lines from a poem. And the first letter of every line read downwards was the mm-hmm. answer. Right. And he just saw that instantly and then blurted it out loud. And we were all done. That was the end of our puzzle experience. Right. And I think it was probably 15 years later that a puzzle hit the table And I saw that it was the same thing, because I now due to Ralph, I must always check for this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and I didn't say it out loud. Right. (laughs) And that's a thing that you have to establish with your players, right, is how to make it fun for everybody. And you may have to have some talks around the puzzles when they hit the table, like, all right, you know, if you see it, think about how you can help everybody else or how do you get everybody involved, right? Yeah.
0: I had a similar experience running an old uh, Living Greyhawk adventure where the... Eight Intelligence, Eight Wisdom Barbarian. We put the puzzle down, and it was a sequence of numbers. And you were supposed to correspond the numbers to something else and then figure out what number comes next. But it was also, if you could figure out the sequence, you could just... So I read the numbers out loud, and the guy playing the, the barbarian, barbarian just said seven. And everyone just turned and looked, because it was a huge, you know, huge thing of numbers. I was like, yeah, it's seven. He's like, yeah, I. That was just the number that came to mind. <laughs> I'm like, okay, because <laughs> it was sort of like a Rain Man kind of experience, right? Very awesome. You just, just, it just, the number popped into his head, and so you, you have those sorts of situations, and you have to figure out how to handle those. Yeah. But what they do present uh, first is a why use puzzles section, and the, the yo, know, the the immediate answer to that is because some people like puzzles. Yeah. <laughs>
1: And Uh, it's a different type of brain activity. Exactly,
0: exactly. So, But they give a a list of bullet points about uh, why puzzles can be fun, uh, provide exciting opportunities to use wit to overcome obstacles, and allow characters to collaborate to make discoveries. Um, Mm -hmm. You can encourage the party to discover information through teamwork. Absolutely. Um, You can provide an opportunity for characters to use their skills in uncommon ways. Mm -hmm. Yes, true. Uh, you can make a setting feel more whimsical, mysterious, or otherworldly. Sure, um, to explain why no one has ever discovered something hidden close at hand—that that's an important one. Uh, mm-hmm. Because sometimes in the when you're writing an adventure, you you need a reason why everyone in the village does hasn't <laughs> found the secret door. True. Yeah. Uh, so you can make that the reason why. Uh, or Speak to reveal, enter. yeah. Or you can uh, reveal a secret that no one knows, uh, or to reveal a secret that no one knows and that magic can't reveal. Yeah. Um, so you can't just cast a spell and solve the problem. You have to to think it through. Um, uh, they also say that puzzles can take a considerable time to solve, so be mindful of how often you use them in your adventures. Most puzzles don't need to be solved immediately and they might be more satisfying when they linger over multiple sessions and take that time to resolve. And that can be very true. Um, one of those things that someone who hates puzzles might be more, uh, more liable to enjoy them is if it's not just a handout set in front of them right. and you have 10 minutes to, to fix it, you present the first clue and be, slowly begin to work toward that answer.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So then we get this sort of block that is called puzzle elements, and it walks us through what all of the 13 puzzles that they give us will use. And this is actually really cool. Like if you're a designer, a, a GM, you should come in and look at – if all you looked at was this, this would be good because it it does – by having this framework, it solves a lot of problems that puzzles have around clarity and purpose. Mm-hmm. So we get box text to describe it to players. Mm-hmm. And then we get a difficulty. Eh, this is a little maybe, but uh, it's easy, medium, or hard. And interestingly, nothing relates to XP here. So it's just, right. it's just a gauge. Right. Uh, puzzle features, what it looks like to the players, plus any hidden aspects. That's important, right? What does it look like? Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the box text, but what else can they find and see, right? If they look in the bottom, they see this. Then the solution. And this is really important. Yeah. I don't know how many times there has been a puzzle in a organized play adventure that did not tell me how the players will d- arrive at the solution. Sometimes it doesn't even tell me the solution. Right. <laughs> That's, those are the worst. <laughs> but it might not, t- you know, so if the players are like, how were, are we supposed to figure this out? And I go, I don't know either. Right. Yeah. You know. oh that's the worst so very important have a solution part that tells you how what the solution is and how it's derived Mm -hmm. um hint checks is interesting and i very much like what they're trying to do here which is to say like look you might get stalled so here's how you can move things forward but it uses skills as the determinant factor all of them here are dc10 so it's sort of an easy check that then reveals something I'm not hugely a fan of what of the particular examples they gave and, and how much info is given. But the important part to me is just know that it's good to give hints. And there's a whole section on on hints that we'll talk about. Right. Uh, then customizing the puzzle, how you can customize it to your adventure, change the difficulty and so on. These are great, really good. make just draws out the idea that you can take their example puzzle and do a lot with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just... Again, this is a really good section to look at when you're creating a puzzle to cover all of these bases. Yeah.
0: And so they delve deeper into hints after that, uh, giving you some examples of hints. So if the players get stuck, you can give a hint via a skill check. And this gets to a question that a lot of people have, or one of the reasons why some people say they don't like puzzles is because it relies only on the player's knowledge and intelligence and reasoning skills rather than the characters. And so what this will do is allow players to receive hints based on skill checks of their characters, which I have some hesitancy to give 100% a hundred percent thumbs up to, but at least you are now allowing the characters to interact as much as the players. Uh, however, If people are getting frustrated because they can't figure out a puzzle or a clue of a puzzle, so then you say, okay, give me an Arcana check because this is a magic puzzle, and they roll a one on their check, all you're doing is adding to that frustration. You're you're piling more frustration on. Uh, So it's generally better, if they need a hint, find a way to give them the hint rather than relying on some skill check that they could, could possibly fail.
1: Yeah, I, I don't super love the the DC-10 concept because I think the concept behind the DC-10 is that they should succeed, mm-hmm. but there's also the what if they don't. And as you said, that right. creates the restoration. I, I prefer to just look at who the character is, right? So if, mm-hmm. if you're a nature-type character and there are some natural aspects involved in this, then let's just give a hint along those lines mm-hmm. and just move, the, you know, what would the character know? what can, right. what would this character that's asking me this question notice or or who is the best character in the party to receive a hint and why you know the ranger you know sees that it's unlikely that you need to know much about these animals to solve this it doesn't right. seem to draw upon it
0: okay cool yeah and another discussion around hints is sort of this it's, it reminds me of the exploration pillar of D&D <laughs> it's sort of this uh, you know redhead the proverbial redheaded stepchild of of dnd where combat is its thing and role-playing is its thing and at, at its face D is a resource management slash storytelling game where puzzles don't fit into any of those yeah. so if you find a way if you're developing a a puzzle for for a game to Make make there be consequences for success or failure other than just the big yes or no at the end. So for every hint that's used, the, a resource is used or the story changes in some way. Bring in those elements to the success and, and failure at the puzzle's uh, whim uh, <laughs> or the situation around the puzzle's whim as things change. Yeah.
1: And – an, an interesting thing to do around this sort of skill check is to do a little more engagement. So you can, you can always say to a character, you know, tell me exactly what you're doing. Well, I'm fiddling with the image that I see. Uh, make me a skill check and I'm going to give you information no matter what you roll. You don't say that aloud, but you're going to mm-hmm. give a hint. Regardless, if the dice are really good, cool, you can remort them for that and that's the explanation. Mm -hmm. But you might say like, well, you don't necessarily know about it, but as you're messing with it, here's a hint, right? Just find a reason to give the hint that feels like a scene in a movie where they are interacting with it and coming up with something.
0: Yeah, and and another thing is, if you're going to give a hint, make sure the hint actually helps. (laughs) Uh, Because puzzles are, well, we'll talk about running the puzzles. But puzzles are that sort of thing where there is no such thing for me as an easy puzzle. Hmm. Uh, there is a more complicated puzzle, mm-hmm. but there's not necessarily an easy puzzle because most puzzles require this sort of insider knowledge of something. There, there is the twist. And it can be a very one, you know, as soon as you understand that it's about counting letters in a word, right? you get it. But getting to that point may never happen. Right, so That's, you have to yeah. make sure the hints that you give uh are are going to help move the characters and the players <laughs> in the right direction
1: yeah we we have this little box of like sort of riddle things that we sometimes break out at dinner in my house, and it's funny how you know on any given night someone. We'll get it, but it's never the same person. And it's just your brain kind of, if it makes that leap and links it together, well, then it's so much easier, right? But if you don't, you have no basis for moving forward. Right, Yeah. yeah. Yep,
0: so let's, oh, and one more thing about hints. The best kind of hint you can give, as far as I'm concerned, is the hint that lets people know when they're off track, Yeah. especially if it's a long process in the puzzle and they get the first step of that process wrong. Don't make them go all the way through figuring out all of these complicated things to give an answer that's, that's wrong. Let them Sally- know with the first time they're, they're off track so they don't spend the next 20 minutes doing all the other figuring to just get a completely wrong
1: answer. And from a design perspective, design, when you have phases to a thing design it. So each phase gives you something, a rewarding click, a glow, uh, you know, something that says, ah, all right, phase one, complete to the party. Cause otherwise they'll get to phase three and they'll go, what if we didn't actually do phase one, right? And Mm -hmm. you're like, Oh God, please don't go back to phase one. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That's where you want to in your design. If there are steps, make sure they know that they are on the right path as they Mm -hmm. go. There's no reason for that to happen. And, and, and taking a step back on puzzles, um, the point of a puzzle is not tricking your players. The point of a puzzle is making them feel cool. <laughs> so right. that, can feel, that can be non-intuitive because you're doing this thing that's hard to solve. But, but the whole point of it is for them to actually solve it working together. Mm-hmm. So you want to eliminate all frustration and let them know they're on the right track or on the wrong track yep, appropriately. For sure. And then there's
0: a section on running puzzles, which I will let Teos uh, walk us through.
1: Yeah, it's a short section, but it's generally good advice on providing details as you think that's needed, letting hits slip, hints slip as needed. Um, it says to not worry whether it's a player or character solving the puzzle. I think that's arguable, but I like the point that in the end, the important part is the group having a good time, and that yeah. is for sure yep. the most important piece. Um, I think some people can be can feel that if if it's just them as people solving it as a person, not as the character that is less fun but others are so you just have to experiment with your group yeah. um and i think it is this is where they could have used a little more information they say encourage the party to solve it together i i think there just could be more some more examples of that but mm. but yeah you want to be careful to not have a single player blurt out a riddle yeah. answer immediately thanks ralph um <laughs> <laughs> uh and and i i forget did you make this note about having yeah. enough handouts that's yeah, really it,
0: if you're running it at a convention, say, uh, and it's a puzzle that people need to look at a handout, bring one for everyone. Because what yeah. will happen sometimes if it's a puzzle, you throw the piece of paper on the table, and the most overly enthusiastic player will grab it, pull it yeah. right up to their face, and start going through it with and not letting everyone.
1: Get get a chance to see. So even at you, home, yeah, even at home, I think that's an important thing to make sure that it's not the kind of thing that two people can see it on the table surface and the others can't, right? Like... right. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, those are just a,
0: a few bits of advice. Then they give example puzzles, and you know, these are are interesting, and I can't say all of them are perfect mm-hmm. uh, in the way that they're designed, but. It gives you a decent idea of how to think through puzzles uh, and which ones are more likely to work well uh, in your games.
1: Yeah, and that's, the, that's the, one of the big gifts of this. is They, they devoted the space to 13. So mm-hmm. for sure, you can if you read those, you'll get a good feeling for the type of puzzle you could create. And all of them tend to be fairly flexible around creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, first one is creature paintings. This is supposed to be easy. Okay. Uh, it's a gallery of seven paintings in a room, and there is a plaque representing or presenting a riddle-like clue where the word count is mentioned, and that's the key to the solution. Mm-hmm. So each painting has a number of creatures of a particular kind, and we get a little table that summarizes them for the DM. Mm-hmm. Counting into each creature's name by the number of creatures in the painting then reveals a letter. So, for example, if the painting has three gnolls in it, the letter is the third in the word null. What is it? It's a null. There are three, so therefore I go G, N, O. O is the answer. Then you get all these, you know, one letter from each painting, and right. you scramble them. They're scrambled probably just because they'll see whatever painting they happen to look at. When you unscramble it, it gives the code of owlbear. Um, we get guidance on how the puzzle solution could be relevant to the adventure, like maybe there's a stuffed owlbear with treasure in another room or something else. Mm-hmm. Um Example of hint checks, an intelligence investigation DC-10 to deduce that the number of creatures is important and uses that number to determine the letter in the creature's name they should review. I mean, that's kind of the whole puzzle. Right. So that's why giving hints is hard. Right.
0: (laughs) Giving hints is hard because that basically tells you the whole puzzle. But that might be all that the players want. Maybe the players just taking the time to count the letters that's the fun right right because i have put into games and i have seen in games puzzles much easier than this mm-hmm. not be solvable by the players yeah and it's not because the players weren't bright it's not because the players weren't paying attention it's just that they it did not click the the word count and even knowing the word count is key might not trigger that exact thing
1: yeah. so it's uh it's tough but on the other hand, you also have six players. And so if you were to give them that intelligence investigation DC ten, mm-hmm. it might give it all away. Yeah. So I, I tend to prefer to step it, you know, step towards that, like lean towards that, like, you know, emphasizing that count matters. In fact, the wisdom perception DC ten is to realize that the words count on alert you that you should count the creatures. And to right. me that's a little better of a start with that, work yeah. up to it, right. uh, you know, give more as you need. um so my main advice here is read over your hints and adjust as needed on the fly these are not you know a bible or an order of operations thing that you must do just go with it as it makes sense and again weave it into what people are doing tell me what your you know fighter is doing okay Mm -hmm. well when you do that right um they give you customization options so you can change the creatures to be objects right the number of objects in a painting or it could be decorated on pedestals or whatever uh, they could be members of professions, anything logically that's in a group that you might say, okay, there's a number of these in each of these instances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have this letter counting aspect to create the solution. Yeah.
0: So, Did you want to talk about any of the other ones before going on to our closing thoughts and tips? Let me, just,
1: let okay. me do skeleton keys because I think this is a neat one that you can use. I, I like the – this is to me an example of truly what I think is fairly simple. Okay. So it's a sinister box iron lock into each of its four sides so four locks on four sides each lock has a sculpted image above the place where you put the key bat snake spider wolf there are four iron keys hanging on a nearby wall the box text actually highlights that you have different numbers of teeth on the iron keys but there's Mm -hmm. also a handout and i probably just use the handouts if i need to push further but the whole point is that the number of teeth on each key matches the number of letters in the image bat snake spider wolf if you put the wrong key in the lock you summon say d4 giant bats or whatever depending on which side you put it into if you put it in the right one you know it unlocks when you do a four the whole thing opens um and i think this is a kind of neat idea that you can very easily customize this type of thing mm-hmm. uh to be uh you know it could be a door. It could be. You know, it doesn't have to be a box. It can be different kinds of images, but something that gives you. You know, you're counting the numbers, and that's what it is.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about the final one, and then I'm going to come back and ask you a question. The one I want to talk okay. about was I have the beholder,
1: mm-hmm. which
0: uh, it, but you're going through a maze, and a goblin will help you pick the right direction. He asks you a uh, he asks you a riddle, and in this case, each of the riddles. The the whole uh, bunch of riddles is about uh, idioms or phrases that use the word I. Mm -hmm. And so based on the answer, you get a word. And then based on the first letter of the word that you get, you know whether you should go north, south, east or west, which is cool. I have I literally have done this puzzle before in, in my adventure. I, I adventure I wrote, I know that I used I, and then used riddles and used a word. So, uh, I don't know if, if someone who wrote this read that, or if it's, they came up <laughs> with it on their own, it's possible. Uh, the issue though is different languages, right? Is an eye of a needle is it, an English expression. I wonder what it is in French and German and Spanish and and Chinese and and the same thing goes back to the skeleton key one right what's uh what's this what's spider in Spanish araña how many how many letters so five okay so right there we're off yeah. uh, so now if you're if you're DMing in a different language you have to change the number of locks or ch- or change the number of uh tines on the key or change the animals that are there to to match up which is not terribly difficult to do but it still takes a so all of these sort of wordplay counting the letters things is fine if you're if you're running and playing in english and writing in english but as soon as you step out of that all of these puzzles become problematic for the dm yeah
1: so I have two quick thoughts on this. One is I ran a table in Spanish of the sort of second or the other first uh, Icewind Dale Adventure for Organized Play for right. AL. Okay. And it has a puzzle that's a fun puzzle, um, somewhat complex. And I had all these you know tools like online stuff and whatever. But since I was running in Spanish, it was sort of like this. It's like I would have had to redesign the puzzle. Right. I couldn't just tell them it in Spanish. Yeah. So I said, Hey, here's the deal. Um, if anybody, you know, most of the players were bilingual. So I said, Mm -hmm. if you want to solve it, here's a link in chat to take a look. Uh, otherwise I'm going to assume that we would do this because it is in English and you know, right. And so we're going to have our fun elsewhere and they were all fine with it. And one of the players came back and said, all right, the answer is blah. And I'm like, yep, yes it is. Good job. (laughs) You know, but it had to be that the other is these examples here. Um, are all based on idioms as you pointed out and one of the things that my kids stun me with constantly is they don't know these sayings in these idioms right uh, I think it's the internet age and things are different but we're not passing these sayings on as we once did yeah and so things that older people might think are relevant and and known are ubiquitous are right. not necessarily and and it's probably the other way as well where young people might think everybody knows a particular saying but it might not be so it, you have to be careful with these yeah
0: yeah because I mean I read whose eye matters to a witch's brew and I'm thinking hag's eye right mm-hmm. because unless you know Shakespeare yes. you're you're not going to the eye of Newt right, uh, right. the windows being the eyes to the soul or, or eyes are the windows to the soul. Yeah, that that's that's not around much anymore. Uh, so it, it's all you got to be careful with these things. And yeah. so let's let's talk about uh, cl- tips and closing thoughts. My biggest tip is if you create a puzzle for an adventure, whether it's published or you just use it with your home group, play test it. You don't yeah. need a and d group to play test a puzzle like like these generally you could just say hey if you you know how would you handle this coworkers or people at lunch <laughs> or you know family let let people actually do it see how they engage with it intellectually and see what hints work best to first nudge them in the right direction and then just sort of present the answer
1: yeah yeah um i think that giving good clues When things are wrong is very important. Um, So you don't want it to. You don't want people to feel dumb as they're doing puzzles, and and you'd be surprised how simple and easy a puzzle can be and be rewarding. Uh, Sometimes I'll put little puzzles in things Mm -hmm. that are, you know, out of six people, someone is. It's it's a hundred percent chance someone's going to come up with this. It's just it's so simple, and every time it, they treat it as if it was hard, like they're all super excited, you know, yeah. and especially the player that said it, they're, they're so happy and, it, and it, it's so funny right. because it's not like it's hard, right? And there right. are six of you, but it just shows you that that's really what we're here to do is to have fun and not to feel frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, you, and if you think of a lot of puzzles that we do, like say a crossword puzzle in that setting where we're, you know, burning time on a plane or a train, it's okay for us to not solve them all. It's a, we're just spending time, but right. in D and D a crossword puzzle is kind of too hard. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. It, it's a, even a simple puzzle takes a, you know, a significant amount of time mm-hmm. if you're running in a two hour or a four hour slot. Uh, so that's to, totally, I don't think you can make a puzzle that's too easy. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. And I, I created it, one for a home okay. campaign that was for dark sun that was based off the merchant calendar calendar and it had all this lore and things they had to look up they did not have fun and they yeah. did not solve it right <laughs> uh, they, did, they they took the damage and worked through it but yeah. and it was just one of those things where i was like wow i overthought this i mm-hmm. what was i doing you know i didn't yeah. think of what they wanted i thought about me right. being clever and it was not me being clever <laughs> yeah
0: and as much as you can have the puzzle make sense within the world that you are creating it in. Um, it's, you know, it's fun to do the word search or whatever, but in, unless it is actually something that's on the floor where they have to walk across it, mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, having the riddle to open the door, have it make sense that it would be useful or make sense within the, the world to have that riddle to open the door. Uh, yeah. you know, have it move the story and the game forward rather than just being this thing that sets between the characters and the rest of the adventure yeah
1: yeah it's hard to do that um it's also hard to predict what type of puzzle a party will like and i'm thinking of when we work together to design uh, along with sean molly uh, a puzzle that would be part of the D open for tomb of annihilation And we had this idea of having the players do physical things like stack dice quickly, uh, use a nerf crossbow to hit a target across the room. So they were actually physically doing things. And we were all thinking, this might be a giant failure because we're pulling them out of character to kind of do these things. Mm -hmm. They might hate this. This could really go poorly. And we were just kind of like, oh, let's see what happens. And they loved it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They really enjoyed it because I think, in part, it gave them a real break from what they normally do. So you kind of never know, right? And, and there's some yeah. experimentation you just have to do, but but be ready to, you know, you're not gonna don't make it an hour long experience, make it a short experience, and then see, and then you can do more in mm-hmm. the in the type that they like over time. Yep.
0: Uh, any other tips or thoughts that you wanted to share on uh, puzzles?
1: Sort of like when we talk about with exploration, you can combine things, right? So having a puzzle in a combat. Uh, In this case, something very simple, very small, can be super rewarding, right? So, like, if you think of that skeleton keys puzzle, Mm -hmm. but there are only two keys, and if you unlock these things, maybe there are two types of undead in the room, you know, ghouls and uh, skeletons, and flipping each one gives you a benefit towards them, right? They're vulnerable to your damage or something like that. Um, That is really cool. But when you do these kinds of things where you put a puzzle... In a combat players hate to give up their actions mm-hmm. and they they are very resistant to say moving 30 feet to a wall and interacting with that wall when they could just whack the thing in front of them yeah so you must really make it easy for them to mm-hmm. do whatever it is they need to do with this and in mm-hmm. fact consider things where they don't have to physically interact like can they just say a word can mm-hmm. they Uh, do an action that they would have on them already like pour a liquid on something because everybody has some sort of liquid thing in their backpack you know Mm -hmm. something like that um to make it super easy because players are surprisingly hard to convince to do something other than the normal actions but when you can do that it's super rewarding and super fun yeah
0: yeah and sometimes you might get the idea of well i want them to not interact with the combat, but interact with this other thing, even though there's a threat around. So I'm just going to have everything be immune to their damage until they solve the puzzle, which works mechanically. But you will be surprised at what lengths players will go to, as Teo said, not to do the thing that's obvious if there is any sort of combat to be done. I mean, they will literally spend... 10 rounds trying 10 different things to damage the monster yeah even though they've tried fire and they've tried bludgeoning and they've tried this and they've tried that and they've made the arcana check that says these things are going to be resistant or immune to damage until the altar is turned off you will still have players trying to do things (laughs) other than solve the puzzle Uh,
1: so yeah you you just just, have to learn over time with yeah yeah, how to do it but you yeah you cannot make it too easy for people to to do the things you must right. make it and if you it'll make it hard they will never ever touch it yeah um also that you can do you can combine exploration with puzzles so if we think of that that uh beholder puzzle that you talked about that is one where you're sort of just the puzzle is the exploration mechanic and if you mm-hmm. fail three times a beholder shows up but you know, imagine that instead it's more like a skill challenge and we're navigating the pu- the the maze, mm-hmm. but these riddles come up periodically. And what they actually do is give us treasure if we get them right. Right Now there's a built-in reward and it sort of pauses, it gives us sort of phases of exploration, right? You make it into these crumbling catacombs and as you're working through that part of the maze, you know, the goblin sh- spirit shows up and, and gives you a riddle. And when you solve it, you learn more maybe more about the lore of these spirits, and you get a, to where the treasure was and and that's a kind of rewarding piece that, as you're exploring adds benefit. so that whole combining a puzzle with something can be fun, yeah you know, or with each, is, yeah.
0: oh God. I say with each uh riddle that you solve, the beholder can use one less eye when Ooh, when okay. it's fought at the end, or you know yeah. something like that
1: yeah and and then you could weave it into something like that there's lore around how the key to fighting it was knowledge or something like mm. that. And, and that right. they were only able to best the creature at the end by doing this. And on now you know, okay, yep. I got this matters. Yeah. Um, the other thing is to think of my last step would be thinking about m- movies and how they portray puzzles to make it really fun for everybody. Right. Um, the fifth element, right. The end of it, classic puzzle, classic, you know, super enjoyable, right. Where you have these pillars and elements and how do you bring the element to each one do you have a match do you have a right uh the trap corridor and raiders of the last Ark, where there are these visual elements to them and you can try and test and, and best them uh, and even make mistakes uh last crusade has all the you know only the penitent person shall pass and things right. like that those are simple and fun designs that almost any group will have most of their players enjoy because they're they're sort of simple like that right you know mm-hmm. somehow you must be able to pass this chasm Mm-hmm. But no magic will work, right? Right. Well, how do we right? And that's
0: yep. Yep. So that is our puzzling look at puzzles. And that concludes our look at the DMs tools chapters of Tasha's. Next week we will give you more news and we will talk about wizards, I think, is where we're up to yeah. on the player side of wizards. things. And maybe we'll even get into group patrons uh next week as well. So thank you all for listening. We hope you have enjoyed the show and thank you to our patrons. If you would like to be a patron of the show, you can go to patreoncom MMP. Teos, where can people find you on social media?
1: I can be found on the Twitters at AlphaStream and you can see my blog at alphastream.org
0: and what a great blog it is
1: What a great blog it is
0: you can find me on twitter at sean merwin or you can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com and you can follow the podcast on twitter at mastering dnd mastering dungeons is a misdirected mark production the media arm of encoded designs so teos now that we have puzzled our way through this episode what are we going to do now
1: uh, I think I'm going to kill some monsters that I find in the Grim Hollow monster grimoire. So okay. Because the Kickstarter is still up. Thank you for the support. Uh, here to plug it. <laughs>